All right, welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Uh, as you know, we've been studying church history over the past uh, year or so, and uh, we're on the home stretch. And uh, so today we're going to be talking about denominations, particularly from a historical perspective since we're talking about church history. And so what we want to do today is kind of jump into our uh, DeLorean and, uh, and go back in uh, time. And we'll go back to the first century. All right, so go back to the first century, and so think in your mind, in the first century, Christ is crucified, he is resurrected, and then 3,000 people are saved at Pentecost, and the gospel begins to spread over the entire empire. And at this point, how many distinct forms of Christianity do you have? One, right? You basically, you have Orthodox Christianity... And then you have other heterodox distortions, right? For example, in the first century, you have Judaizers, right? This is a lot of Paul's ministry is writing against Judaizers, people who are compromising the gospel by saying things like you must be circumcised, you must take on all of the aspects of the Mosaic law in order to be saved. So you have these Judaizer groups, and, and Paul says that they stand condemned. They are cut off from the gospel. So they're not true Christians. And so you have Christianity, and then you have heterodoxy, all right? In addition to Judaizers, you have people who are mingling Christian theology with Greek philosophy that turns into things like Gnosticism and so forth. And, uh, and so that's the first century, all right? And then after the first century, you have a number of heresies, a number of heretics that come up. Uh, for instance, guys like Arius, right? What did Arius believe? Is Jesus God or not God? Not God. He is like God. He is like God, but he is not actually God. He is not of the same substance as the Father. He is of a similar substance as the Father. And so you have Arianism, which is this huge divergent movement that says that Jesus is like God, but he is himself not God. And so during the, uh, during the first few centuries of the church, you have these various Trinitarian and Christological heresies. We've talked about that before. And what's the response of the church? In the face of these uh, heresies, what does the church do? They gather together, and then what do they do? They write a response. Those responses are in confessions and creeds and, uh, and so forth. And those confessions and creeds then are going to define the boundaries of Christianity. And since heterodoxy or heresy is by definition beyond the bounds of Christianity... Again, there's only one expression of the church in the early days. That one church has different emphases depending on its geographic locale. The church in Rome, for instance, has different uh, emphases, different uh, nuances than the church in Alexandria or Constantinople or Antioch or Jerusalem or whatever it might be. But nevertheless, there is this substantial unity within the church that, uh, that lasts for uh, about a millennium. And that all changes in 1054. What happens in 1054? There's a big split. There's a schism, all right? There's a schism that takes place. And on one hand, you now have Roman Catholicism in the West, and you have what's in the East? Yeah, Greek Orthodoxy or Eastern Orthodoxy or whatever you might want to call it. So you have Roman Catholicism and you have Eastern Orthodoxy. So for the first time in Christian history, no longer is Christianity this one monolithic sort of movement. Now all of a sudden there are these two different expressions. They're both Christian, 
all right, in the sense of they both hold to the, uh, the various ecumenical councils uh, and creeds of, uh, of the early church. Neither of them is heretical. Neither of them is heterodox. Uh, but uh, they are nevertheless these two different diverse e- expressions uh, of the church. Uh, but they split for various theological, political, and uh, geographical uh, reasons that we've talked about uh, before in the 11th century. And then things will kind of go on like that with only these two expressions, these two forms of Christianity for about 500 years until there's another major event that affects the church and church unity. What happens in uh, the 16th century? The Reformation, right? So now suddenly you have three branches of Christianity, three different forms or expressions of Christianity. You have Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and then you have Protestantism. Now one of the interesting things about Protestantism is that Protestantism itself was never monolithic, right? Embedded in the Reformation itself, embedded in the kind of the, the, the ethic, uh, the, uh, the, the kind of the ideals of the Reformation itself was this idea of diversity, right? Two of the leading voices at the beginning of the Reformation, Luther and Zwingli, they don't agree, for instance, on the Lord's Supper, and that disagreement is so strong that even though they agree on the 14 other points that they're disputing, they have 15 points that they're disputing, 14 of them they agree on, the 15th, the Lord's Supper, they don't agree on, and that disagreement is so strong they can't merge their movements into one unified revolution. So from the beginning, Protestantism isn't, uh, isn't uniform in expression. This, this, uh, this whole movement is kind of uh, guided by uh, uh, the undercurrents of plurality and uh, diversity. That's part of the original DNA of the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. So within the first generation of the Reformation, you see this split between Lutheranism and what's called Reform theology. So Lutheranism follows Luther. Reform theology is going to follow guys like Zwingli and then Calvin and, uh, and so forth. And that then is going to snowball uh, from there. Whereas church change, as you can see, was previously somewhat slow. It took a 1,000 years for the East and the West to divide, and it took another uh, 500 years for uh, Roman Catholicism to, uh, to divide into uh, Protestantism. Uh, now, all of a sudden, that's going to happen much more quickly. There's going to be kind of an, uh, an avalanche, and that kind of makes sense when you think about it because what was the uh, idea of Catholicism? You have this, this absolute ecclesiastical authority that's vested in one man that is the Pope. And then once that is upended, all of a sudden the principle of self-designation is embedded into the Protestant identity, leading to this, uh, this idea, this snowball, uh, this avalanche of these competing uh, movements. And so within a century, you have Anglicans, you have Anabaptists, you have Presbyterians, and so forth. That's what we're going to talk about uh, today. And then once that Reformation theological principle of the priesthood of the believer is going to combine with the philosophical uh, ethos of individuality and self-determination and democracy, where it combines on the American shores, once that happens, there's just going to be this massive growth in denominations and in denominationalism. In fact, You could say, in a sense, that the proliferation of denominations and this idea of denominationalism is kind of a decidedly American uh, concept. This is, in fact, one of the major contributions of America to church history. As uh, Justo Gonzalez writes, 
In a religiously pluralistic society where tolerance was necessary for political survival and in view of the bloodshed that dogmatism had caused elsewhere, North American Protestants tended to think of the church as an invisible reality consisting of all true believers and of the visible churches of denominations as voluntary organizations that believers create and join according to their convictions and preferences. All right? And this is really distinct. In the first 1,500 years of church history, you don't choose your expression of faith. Your expression of faith is chosen for you, not only by your family, but also by your geographical locale. Right? If you're born in the West, generally you're Roman Catholic. If you're born in the East, at least part of the, uh, the old uh, Roman Empire, if you're born in the Eastern part of the Roman Empire, you're generally Eastern Orthodox. Likewise, in the early days of the Reformation, that still holds true. If you live in Germany, by and large, you're Lutheran. If you live in England, by and large, you're Anglican. Uh, if you live in other parts of, the, uh, of Europe, by and large, you're part of the Reformed tradition. But as we're talking about America... That's no longer the case, and that's what we want to kind of talk about uh, today. By the way, uh, the date, obviously, on your notes is wrong. It's not November uh, 17th, um, so sorry about that. I just uh, remembered that this morning. But uh, we'll, so, so what we're going to do is we're going to answer a few questions, all right? Uh, five different questions that we want to answer today. Number one, what is a denomination? Number two, what is the history of denominationalism? Number three, what are the advantages of denominations? Four, what are the disadvantages of denominations? And then fifthly, we will uh, personalize this by asking, uh, is Parkway a member of a denomination? And uh, why or why not? All right, so let's begin with what is a denomination. Now, to, to really uh, begin to, to summarize this, to answer this question, we need to kind of define our terms and, uh, and kind of understand the various levels of distinctions that you can make within uh, Christianity. The first level of distinction is just to distinguish Christianity from other world religions. Right? So, you, so when, you, uh, when you contrast Christianity to uh, things like Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, so forth, those are just other world religions. So that's the first level of distinction that you could make is between Christianity and other world religions. Then within Christianity, uh, you have the church as opposed to groups that call themselves Christian but are actually heretical, that believe things that are heterodox, beyond the bounds of orthodoxy. We talked about that before. For example, Arians, who follow the teachings of Arius, who taught that Jesus was a created being. He's not fully God, all right? So that's heresy. It was condemned in the early church as being outside of the true church. It's been condemned by all subsequent Christians uh, and so forth. It's not a version of Christianity. It's not a type of Christianity. It's not a family of Christianity or something like that. It's anti-Christian. So that's the second type of distinction you can make is those who would call themselves Christian but aren't Christian. Uh, those are uh, heretical or heterodox or something like that. Then when it comes to the true church, it's generally split into three branches. Right? That's the board that we use. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. So you have a true church as opposed to other world religions and as opposed to these uh, heretical groups. And then you have the true church, and that true church is divided into three branches. It would be helpful if I had a whiteboard up here. I didn't think about that until just now. And, uh, and so you have these three branches, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. And then within Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, 
although they are a bit more monolithic, they're quite a bit more monolithic than Protestantism, there is still some diversity there, right? For instance, in Eastern Orthodoxy, you have Russian Orthodoxy and Romanian Orthodoxy and Greek Orthodox and all of these sorts of things. Or you have various forms of Roman Catholicism depending on uh, what particular, uh, particular monastic tradition you have or whatever it might be. But when we talk about denominations, we're generally just referring to a Protestant phenomenon. And, uh, and so in general, when you talk about denominations, you're just talking about a particularly Protestant uh, phenomenon. And as the church in general is divided between orthodox and heterodox. The same is true within the Protestant tradition. There's also these uh, sub-Christian, anti-Christian groups that would claim to be Protestant, uh, but are actually heretical groups within the uh, that are just kind of pretending to have the name uh, Protestant. For instance, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, and so forth. And so those are not denominations. Those are not branches of Christianity. Those are not types of Christianity. Those are not groups of Christianity or whatever. Those are sub-Christian heretical sects, S-E-C-T-S. All right, That's what a cult is. Now, before we get to denominations, we also have another level. And that other level could be a theological or ecclesiastical tradition, uh, which is kind of just this broad way of distinguishing various Protestant families. For instance, you have Baptists, and you have Methodists, and you have Presbyterians. And in one sense, those could be called denominations, right? Those are all denominations in one sense of the term. But in another sense, you could dive down even further. And whenever you're talking about denominations, you could go further one level down uh, in, in the sense that each of those can be further divided, right? For instance, you could be a general Baptist, you could be a northern Baptist, you could be a southern Baptist, you could be a particular Baptist, you could be a landmark Baptist, uh, whatever it uh, might be. And uh, so depending on how you're using it, your denominational uh, indicator could be Baptist, or it could be another level down. You could be some, meaning something more specific like Southern Baptist, right? So to summarize, the term branches of Christianity refers to the three main families of Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestant. Heretical groups are those uh, who deny the various Orthodox beliefs related to Trinitarianism and Christology, as articulated in the first six ecumenical councils, early creeds and confessions like Nicaea, Constantinople, Chalcedon. The idea of a theological tradition or a, uh, or a theological family refers to these broad ways of distinguishing various Protestant families, Baptist, Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, so forth. And then, uh, and then that could be what, what you're talking about when you're talking about denominations, or you could mean something even a little bit more uh, uh, kind of smaller micro uh, level uh, beyond that, and that is uh, when you begin to uh, parse out each of those groups. So Baptists could be divided into 12 or 15 or 100 or different uh, diverse groups. Um, and uh, so, in short, denominations are Protestant theological traditions that are distinguished by certain doctrines, traditions, and Liturgies. That's what a denomination is. As Roger Olson says, a denomination is any group of churches, congregations, assemblies, or religious meetings with some affiliation among themselves, however formal or informal it may be. So Catholicism isn't a denomination, it's a branch. Mormonism isn't a denomination, it's a cult. Baptist might be a denomination, or you could consider that a theological family. 
and uh, and then the denomination could be Southern Baptist or something like that. Um, but to really understand this, we need to know why are they called denominations? Why do we call them denominations? When we think of the word denominations, what's the what's the one other time we use that word other than we're talking about the church? Money, right? All right. You go to the bank. You ask for a hundred dollars. And they ask you, what denomination, right? They're not asking you if you're Methodist or something like that. All right, what are they asking? They're asking you, do you want ones or fives or tens or twenties or whatever it, uh, it might be? Uh, because money, currency, is divided in these different denominations, all right? And what's unique about the denominations is their unique value. What is similar to all those denominations is that they are valuable, they are legal currency. They are legal tender that you can use for all debts, foreign and, uh, and domestic, uh, and so forth. And that's similar to the idea of ecclesiastical denominations. They're all valid currency in a sense. They're all within the realm of Christianity. They're all orthodox. They're all Christian. They simply have distinct values. All right. So that's why they're called denominations. The word denomination is from the Latin uh, denominare, meaning to name. All right. Now, names don't always mean something today. Right? My name's Robert Jeffrey. That doesn't mean that much. Um, but historically, that wasn't the case. Right? And so when you read in the Bible, a, a, a name actually means something. Jesus means what? What does the name Jesus mean? He will see it, save his people from their sins. Right? It means salvation. Right? Or Abraham, the father of many nations. So names... Typically, historically, they have some sort of a connotation. They have some sort of meaning that is attached to them. That's certainly uh, the, true when it comes to denominations. The name of the denomination tells us quite a bit about that denomination. In fact, it tells us what's unique about that denomination. All right? Some sort of attribute, some sort of affinity within that denomination that makes it dissimilar from other orthodox groups. Right? So in general, the name of the denomination tells you what makes that denomination different or distinct or whatever it might be. That's not why there's no denomination. That's called the Trinitarians. Why not? Because all Christians are Trinitarian, right? That's not distinct. And, uh, and so that does, doesn't work. So denominations are denominated by their distinctives, by a particular affinity. That might involve a distinct ecclesiastical structure or a distinct view of the spiritual gifts, or a view of the sacraments, or whatever it uh, might be. What makes a Baptist a Baptist? Well, one of the most evident distinctives is our view of baptism, all right, uh, that we uh, hold to credo-baptism. That's why we are called Baptist. What about Methodist? Why are they called Methodists? Well, because John and uh, Charles Wesley, the founders of Methodism, employed a number of, quote, methods in their revival techniques and evangelism and, uh, and so forth. And so they're called Methodists because of the unique methods that were employed by John Wesley. What about Presbyterians? Well, presbyteros is the Greek word for elders, and Presbyterians have a unique view of elders and, uh, and so forth. What about Episcopals? Again, Episcopos is the Greek word for overseer. And Episcopalians have a distinct view of bishops or overseers. So let's talk a little bit about when the various denominations started and what makes them distinct. All right, so first, first century through the 10th century, no denominations. 
no branches. You just have the church, and then everything else is outside the church, right? You have the church, and then you have pagans, and you have heretics. That's it. Then in 1054, you have two branches. You have Roman Catholics, and you have Eastern Orthodoxy. Then in 1517, you have the birth of the Reformation. Now you have three branches, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Protestantism. And as we talked about, one of the distinctives of Protestantism is the idea of the priesthood of the believer. The Reformation is in part a protest to this sacred-secular divide that you see in the Roman Catholic Church. So there is embedded in the Reformation itself the seeds of diversity and plurality. And it doesn't take long for those seeds to begin to take root. In fact, within the first generation of the Reformation, you have these two distinct traditions that emerge and cannot be reconciled. So in the 16th century, within the first century, uh, or within the first generation of the Reformation, you have Lutheranism and then you have Reformed churches. And those are prim- primarily distinguished by their views on the Lord's Supper and also by their principles for worship. So let's talk about the Lord's Supper and how that relates to each group, right? So when it comes to the Lord's Supper, the Lutherans, following Luther, that's why they're called Lutherans, um, they, they believe in what is called consubstantiation, that Christ is physically present in, with, and under the elements. That's as distinguished from transubstantiation, which is the Roman Catholic doctrine, that the, uh, the elements actually are transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Luther says they're not transformed into the body and blood of Christ. The, blood, uh, the bread and the wine are still there. But so is the body and blood of, uh, of Christ. Uh, those uh, are pr- uh, present in, with, and under the elements. So it's a both and, not an either or sort of thing. And so that's the Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper. The Reformed view, on the other hand, is, uh, is generally, you have Zwingli's view, and then you have what later becomes the Reformed view, which is, by the way, Swingley's view is just this memorial view. That the, that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's just this uh, memorial, this symbolic sort of thing. But the Reformed tradition following Cal, uh, Calvin says that there is a spiritual presence there. Right? That, that Christ is present, but it's a, it's a mysterious, mysterious spiritual uh, presence. And so that's the first thing that distinguishes Lutheranism and uh, the Reformed tradition. And then the second thing is uh, they have very distinct views of principles for worship. The Lutheran tradition holds to what's called the normative principle, right? This is, again, this is Luther's view. And his view is whatever is not prohibited in Scripture is permitted in worship. If there's not a prohibition in Scripture, it is permitted within the context of worship. The Reformed position, on the other hand, holds to what's called the regulative principle. The regulative principle is the idea that whatever is not prescribed is not permitted, right? You can see the difference there. Again, normative principle, whatever is not prohibited is permitted. The reformed regulative principle, whatever is uh, not prescribed is not permitted. That doesn't mean things like light bulbs and electricity and so forth, but rather they're talking about things like uh, whether or not you can use guitars or you can use amplifiers or whether or not uh, images are allowed in the context of worship or you can use things like incense or a skit or something like that. So the Reformed Presbyterian perspective is articulated by Calvin who wrote, God approves of all modes of worship not expressly sanctioned by his word, or the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, a pretty good confession 
um, uh, otherwise um, says this, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited uh, by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy uh, Scripture. So those are the two main differences between the Lutheran tradition and the Reformed tradition. You have different views of the Lord's Supper and then different views of their principles for worship. Around this same time, you also have Anglicanism. Anglicanism emerges as this major tradition or denomination. Why is it called Anglicanism? Because it started in England, right? So England, Anglo, Anglicanism. And so Anglicanism is a product of the English Reformation. We talked about it in particular a couple of months ago. What do Anglicans believe? Well, they generally hold to Protestant doctrine, but they're going to retain this Catholic ecclesiastical structure whereby a bishop is going to oversee multiple churches. And then an archbishop oversees multiple bishops, uh, etc. So there is this hierarchy uh, for lack of a non-pejorative term, this pyramid scheme sort of thing uh, that you see within uh, Anglicanism. So it's Protestant doctrine, but Catholic ecclesiastical structure. That is uh, Anglicanism. Also in the 16th century, there is the, uh, the birth of the Anabaptist tradition. It's called Anabaptist for what reason? Because they're against infant baptism, and so the prefix Anna means re or again, and so it means to be baptized uh, again. So they, uh, they read the scriptures, they conclude that infant baptism is not biblical, and, uh, and so uh, they think that, that everyone who was baptized as an infant, which is almost all of Europe at this time, should be re-baptized. And, uh, and so... We talked about Anabaptism a while back. It's, a, it's not a monolithic movement. It's a very diverse uh, movement. Some uh, Anabaptists were non-Trinitarian. In other words, they were non-Christian. Uh, some of them were very militant and so forth. Uh, so go back and listen to that. But today, the distinctives of Anabaptism typically include their views on baptism. Again, they're not paedo-baptist. And then uh, most of them today hold to strict pacifism. Uh, they won't serve in the war and so forth. If you saw that uh, movie Hacksaw Ridge, uh, it, it is about uh, that. And then also they hold to uh, this much stronger view of cultural separationism. So uh, Anabaptist traditions today in the U.S. include like the Mennonites and the Amish. And so that sort of uh, idea of the Amish uh, is kind of one of the, the ideals of the Anabaptist tradition, that, that idea of cultural separation. We're going to remove ourselves from society. We're going to have our own little uh, uh, society. And, uh, and then we're going to uh, kind of circle the wagons until Jesus uh, returns. So that's in the 16th century uh, as well. Meanwhile... Within the Reformed tradition, there, uh, there arose these two different views of church governance. Right? All of the Reformed uh, groups, and by that I don't mean just anybody coming out of the Reformation, but I mean as opposed to Lutheranism, all of the Reformed groups reject the idea of bishops, overseers uh, with uh, authority over multiple churches, but they disagreed then on what's the alternative. Some of them held to the idea of presbyteries, that's why they're called Presbyterians, while others embrace the idea of local congregational authority, and those were called Congregationalists. All right? What's a Presbytery? A Presbytery uh, is, so think of the Episcopalian 
uh, uh, view, which is one bishop rules over multiple churches. The Presbyterian view is instead a group of elders rules over multiple churches. And so that's, uh, that's called a presbytery. And uh, so you have these two different views within the Reformed tradition. You have the Presbyterian view, and then you have the Congregationalist view. The Presbyterians, uh, in general, held to the idea that a group of elders could oversee multiple churches. So let's say Parkway and uh, the Parks Church in uh, McKinney are in the same uh, presbytery. And so some of our elders and some of their elders would be on this super elder team. And they would oversee both of us and, uh, and give us uh, direction and, uh, and so forth. As opposed to congregationalism, uh, the congregationalists uh, who held that local church authority uh, should be vested only within the local church itself. So you have both of those traditions uh, that uh, derive uh, within the early days of the Reformed tradition. Let's move forward. One century, 17th century, we'll talk about the birth of the Baptist tradition. All right, Baptists probably started, they're not a result of the Anabaptists, although they have some influence uh, by the Anabaptists, but it probably started with a guy named John Smith in 1608, Smith with a Y, not your normal English spelling. Smith was an English separatist um, in the Congregationalist tradition, and he had moved to Amsterdam where there was a lot more religious freedom at the time. And while he was there, he was then exposed to some of the teachings of Anabaptism, and the idea, in particular, of believers' baptism really stuck. Right? Then that begins to spread back to England. So you have, in general, Baptists, which is this com- uh, combination of the congregational view of the Congregationalists and then the uh, uh, Baptistic views of the Anabaptists. And so those are the distinct views of uh, Baptists today. Baptism. That is that they are credo-baptist. They are not paedo-baptistic. They don't uh, baptize uh, infants. They only baptize those who make a profession of faith. That's what credo means, I believe. And, uh, and so that's their distinct view. And then also their uh, distinct view of church governance. There's no ecclesiastical authority over the local church within the uh, Baptist tradition. So, for instance, if you're in the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, that convention technically doesn't have any actual authority over you. If every other SBC church in the world says we want to start baptizing babies, that doesn't carry any authority over your church. That doesn't mean you have to do it. That's not the case in Episcopalian or Anglican or Presbyterian or whatever it might be. If the, uh, if the denomination head in those structures say you must do this thing, then you either do it or you lose your building. All right? You lose your church in essence. But that's not the case with the Baptist view. There is no local church. There is no authority over the local church. Uh, besides the Scripture and Christ and, uh, and so forth. So uh, at this point, you have uh, these various traditions, and they're all immigrating to the New World. Uh, they're immigrating to the New World because of persecution, because of the promise of religious freedom, uh, or simply for the opportunities of new lands and, and so forth that are afforded to you in the colonies. So you have the Congregationalists, you have Baptists, you have Presbyterians, you have Anglicans. All of them are moving to the colonies. And then you begin to have these certain philosophical ideals, ideals that are unique to America. Ideas like democracy, uh, ideas like separation of church and state, of self-governance, all of these sorts of philosophical uh, ideals. And when those philosophical ideals begin, uh, they collide with ecclesiology, 
the result is this explosion of new traditions and new denominations. For example, in the 18th century, as mentioned before, you have the birth of the Methodist tradition, right? Started by John and Charles Wesley. They were Anglicans, but they started kind of their own new thing due to their unique methods. Um, and, uh, and so its distinctives are there uh, that they share similar theological convictions to Anglicans. But in addition, most Methodists today are Arminian. Some believe in what's called perfect sanctification. Uh, it's possible in this life in which a person uh, ceases from all known sin. It's not the idea that you cease from all sin whatsoever. It's just that you can actually cease from all known sin. That's called Wesleyan holiness. That's one of the, uh, the, the major platforms of a lot of Methodists today. Speaking of Anglicanism in the uh, 18th century in the U.S., you also have the birth of the Episcopalian tradition. How does the Episcopalian tradition start? Well, imagine you're an Anglican living in America in the late 18th century, all right? You're an Anglican living in uh, America or in the colonies in the late 18th century. What you need to know is part of the official Anglican teaching is that the British monarch is the supreme head of the Anglican church. That's true even today. So Queen Elizabeth is uh, at least the titular head of the Anglican church. And that's a problem if you're living in the colonies in the late 18th century. Why? You've just fought a war against King George the tyrant, right? You don't want to call him the head of anything. And you've just declared independence from him. So Episcopalianism is basically just Anglicans who said, we don't like that aspect. We don't like having to bow any sort of knee to King George. And, uh, and so it's basically just Americanized Anglicanism, all right? At least that's how it originally starts. That's no longer the case. In fact, today you have American Anglicans and you have non-American Episcopals. But Episcopalianism in uh, its original form was just Anglicanism that wanted to, to sever the connection to the British monarchy. And so they began to call themselves uh, Episcopalian. Fast forward a bit, 19th century, you have the birth of the Restorationist traditions and denominations. We talked about that a bit with the Second Great Awakening. Restorationism refers to a number of different denominations, Seventh-day Adventists, the Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, and so forth. And they all kind of shared this belief that the church was so corrupted that their goal was to kind of restore it. And they're typically anti-confession. They're typically anti-creeds. That's where you get things like no creed but the Bible. They're somewhat anti-intellectual and legalistic. All right. Um, and so ironically, one of the main goals of, uh, of guys like Alexander Campbell, who was the founder of the, uh, the Christian church or the disciples of Christ, one of his main goals was to go back to the original pristine Christianity all right, back before it was so fragmented, uh, composed of all of these denominations. So his goal was to get rid of denominations, but he inadvertently just started his own, right? That's why, though, that's why he called it the Disciples of Christ. Why? Because that was not a denominational sort of thing, right? Anybody, if you're a Christian, it's like we said, there's, there's no denomination called the Trinitarians. Why not? Because every Christian is a Trinitarian. That was his goal. So he named his, uh, even in uh, his denomination, uh, denominator, even in what he named it, 
uh, he wanted to kind of express this idea that it transcended denominations. As a result, though, it, it uh, actually just created um, not only one, but a, a number of others that had the exact opposite effect that he wanted it to do. And that was in the 19th century. In the 20th century, there are a number of developments to uh, discuss. The first, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is the birth of Pentecostalism. I thought that was a really helpful uh, lesson. What's distinct about Pentecostalism is their uh, view of, uh, of the charismatic gifts. All right? They're called Pentecostal because of their emphasis on, the, on tongues, which was uh, kind of the, the evidence of conversion at Pentecost. While not all charismatics are Pentecostal, all Pentecostals are charismatic. All right? Not all charismatics are Pentecostal, but all Pentecostals are charismatic. So within this group, you have the Assemblies of God, you have the Pentecostal Church of God, you have the Vineyard Churches, and then you have all the various churches with titles like Fire Baptized, Holiness Temple of the King, or whatever it, uh, it might be. So that's the first development, the development of Pentecostalism in all of those sub-denominations. The second development to mention in the 20th century uh, is interesting. It's the designation of what's called mainline denominations. Raise your hand if you ever heard of mainline denominations, all right? Nobody really knows where that term mainline denominations come from. Some think it's because of a church meeting uh, outside the mainline of a subway. I think it was Philadelphia or Chicago or something like that. But no one really knows where that term comes from. But regardless, this is the name of a number of denominations that tended to side with modernist in the fundamentalist modernist debate of the early 20th century that we talked about uh, two weeks ago whenever we talked about fundamentalism, all right? Uh, besides mainline, they're also known as the Seven Sisters of American Protestantism. So those seven denominations, mainline denominations, are the American Baptist Churches USA, the Christian Church, or also known as the Disciples of Christ, the Episcopal Church, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Presbyterian Church USA, the United Church of Christ, and the United Methodist Church. By and large, each of those cited with theological liberalism, right? As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you have this, uh, this confluence of events that are happening uh, in the uh, late 19th, uh, early 20th century where you have all of these enlightenment sort of ideas that have already taken root within the American Academy. And then you have things like uh, the teaching of um, Darwinian evolution. And then you have theological liberalism. And by and large, churches and seminaries and denominations were just eating this up. And so the mainline denominations refer to these denominations that, uh, that by and large compromised uh, on uh, those things. And, uh, and so they tended to be um, much more pluralistic. Uh, in, uh, in their views of what is and is not uh, acceptable. Uh, they are much less convinced of things like inerrancy, or they would define it much differently than we would. Uh, and this particularly comes out on issues like gender and sexuality. So ma- mainline churches tend to be much more uh, supportive of female pastors, uh, same-sex marriage, and, and so forth. And so you can see how they've simply adopted all the assumptions of modernity. That's what mainline churches uh, have done. And with that capitulation also comes influence. All right? There's a lot of talk, uh, at least in the 80s and so forth, about the, uh, the influence of evangelicalism. But if you look at it historically, it's not evangelicalism 
as you truly define evangelicalism, we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks, it's not really evangelicalism that's had this, this great influence on American culture. Uh, it's more mainline denominations who have uh, influenced American politics and culture. About half the members of Congress are from mainline denominations, as were President Trump, President Obama, even President Bush, who was actually from the United Methodist uh, Church. So that's the second development, the development of what's called mainline denominations. A third development of the 20th century is that uh, due to the aforementioned fundamentalist, modernist uh, controversy, you have a, uh, the birth of a number of new denominations uh, as one particular denomination would lean towards liberalism. Uh, oftentimes conservatives within that denomination would split from it and uh, create a conservative denomination in its place. And so you see that reflected today in the distinction between the Presbyterian Church USA, which is uh, very liberal, and the Presbyterian Church in America, which is much more theologically and socially uh, conservative. So that's a little bit about the history and beliefs of various denominations. Just kind of scratch the surface, because there's literally something like thousands of different denominations. If you really want to get insular, uh, and look at it, and so we won't uh, have an opportunity uh, to look at each and every single one of them, but hopefully that gives you kind of a, a view of the history of how these various denominational families uh, came about. So why do we have so many denominations today? Years ago, I had a, a buddy, um, and he invited me to lunch, and he wanted to talk about this ministry that he wanted to start on his college campus. And the goal of that ministry, he said, was to promote a unified church that was free of denominational ties because he felt like denominations were a direct violation of Christ's call for unity. In fact, uh, he thought denominations were sinful. So I asked him, what's his alternative? Uh, that's what I asked him. I thought, that's cute. That was my original thought. And, uh, and his alternative, he said, basically, there should be no denominations at all, but rather just one unified uh, church. So um, I think Zach was actually at that lunch with me. So I, I think we asked, um, how does that one church then deal with these denominational distinctives? And he was kind of like a, a deer in the headlights um, as we asked him, for, for example, what about baptism? Like, do you baptize babies or not? In this one, you know, one church that rule them all, are you going to baptize babies or not? I don't think most average church-going Christians have really thought about that. According to my beliefs, you absolutely should not, must not baptize a child who has absolutely no profession of faith. But according to paedobaptism, you absolutely must do so, right? Paedobaptists don't think it's okay to baptize your baby. It's, they say it is contingent upon you. It is your responsibility. It is your mandate by God to baptize your baby. So imagine a church where you have both pedo and credo baptism. It doesn't work, right? Some churches try to make it work, right? They say, we'll, we'll allow either, but in doing so, they aren't really doing either. To say, you can baptize your babies, but you don't have to, is to really repudiate the traditional view for pedo baptism, right? It's kind of like telling an Old Testament Jew, you, you can circumcise your kid, but you don't have to, that doesn't work, all right? So some churches can act like they allow both, but really what they're doing is they're just uh, compromising on the convictions of at least one or the other. But my point is, even though denominations might not be ideal, obviously it would be better to have one unified church, everybody believing the same things and doing the same things uh, and all that. 
even though it may not be ideal to have denominations, it does serve an important pur- purpose for the contemporary church. Historically, you only had true churches and false churches. Right? That's why the Catholic response to the, uh, the Protestants is to just declare them condemned, anathema, to say they're damned. But with the Reformation, you have this idea all of a sudden that there can be an actual true church, and yet it can be more or less pure. That was kind of a novel view of the, uh, the Reformation. For example, chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession, I think this might be in your notes, says the following, section 4, This Catholic church hath been sometimes more or sometimes less visible, and particular churches, which are members thereof, are more or less pure, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed more or less purely in them. Section 5, the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error. And some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, they sh- uh, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. So imagine if you didn't have that understanding. If you didn't have the understanding that there could be more and less pure churches. That instead you just operated under this historic Roman Catholic sort of view of there is the true church and then there is everything else is a false church. Everyone else is damned. Everyone else is condemned. If that's the case, you can't have dinner with your Presbyterian uncle. Right? If your kid decides they want to be Methodist, they're shunned. They're out of your life. Right? So denominations have this uh, effect. They have this, this opportunity for us to say, I disagree with you on this important theological doctrine, but I still confess you as a brother or a sister. I'm still going to fellowship with you. I'm still going to eat with you. I'm still going to worship with you. I'm still going to do things like that with you because I agree that you're a brother. We just disagree on these secondary or tertiary sort of, uh, of issues. So um, let's talk a little bit about some of the advantages of denominations. Number one is accountability. All right. I, th- th- I think the two biggest, let me just summarize, I think the two biggest advantages of denominations are that they uh, give you a very strong, consistent view of what your theological convictions are. So typically they have confessions or creeds or statement of faiths or uh, whatever it might be. And then also it provides an opportunity for cooperation. Those are the two biggest ones. But some of the sub-points there, accountability. That was a huge issue that blew up in the SBC a couple of years ago um, was a lack of accountability that allowed for rampant sexual abuse. Uh, in reality, every church, every local church pastor needs some degree of accountability. If you believe that sin is a pervasive reality, then, uh, then you'll have to strive to, uh, to check it, to kill it. And that often requires a voice outside of your own local church. And so denominations provide a degree of accountability through policies and appeals processes, confessions, authority, so forth. A second one, I mentioned it before, unified confession. A congregation should be able to expect that certain theological, uh, a certain degree of theological precision and convictions from its leadership and that it won't change. Right, that it's not just going to change based on the whims of whoever the elders, the pastors are uh, at the time. And so a unified confession is one of the advantages of a uh, denomination. That isn't necessarily the case in the SBC because, again, the SBC is, uh, believes in local church uh, authority. But at least within Presbyterian, 
Episcopalian, Anglican, all of the other sorts of, uh, of denominations that have more of a hierarchical sort of structure. There is this idea that a local church can't change what it believes because that is handed down from on high. A third benefit, unified missions. Denominations allow for a concentrated, a comprehensive, cooperative sort of effort to engage in ministry uh, together. And that's sometimes more easier to do um, uh, with others, right? It's probably much more easy for 10 little churches to gather together to plant a church than it is for one little church to, uh, to plant a church. Uh, their combined assets, both physical assets, spiritual assets, uh, and so forth, will far outstrip anything they can do independently. Another one, theological precision. That kind of flows from what we've already talked about, so I'll skip it for the sake of time. Uh, the next one, fellowship. There's certain advantages that come from just uh, meeting together with other people and other contexts and other churches and so forth for the sake of mutual encouragement uh, and, uh, and so forth. And that leads into the next point, mutual encouragement and, uh, and support. Every church, every pastor needs to know they're not alone. All right? It's easy to get caught up in our own little corner of the world, to feel isolated uh, as though there's nowhere to turn so denominations can be useful. And then, uh, uh, and then lastly, social work, uh, uh, similar to the way that uh, missions and so forth, church planning is a lot easier if there's cooperation Social work is often uh, much more easy. That's why a lot of the, historically, uh, uh, colleges, hospitals, uh, most colleges, most hospitals, most universities were originally founded by uh, different denominations uh, because uh, that's a lot easier to do when there is cooperation. Now, what are some of the disadvantages of denominations? Answering that question, by and large, depends on what type of denomination What's in particular the denominational sort of structure? For instance, in, um, in Episcopalian denominations, um, whereby a bishop is going to oversee multiple churches, or in a Presbyterian form in which multiple, a group of elders is going to oversee multiple churches, there's always the danger of corruption that's filtering down. If your denomination, for instance, decides to ordain lesbians or something like that, then uh, your church needs to either be okay with that or you need to either find a new denomination. And along with finding a new denomination, that typically means you need to find new bank account and new building and new resources and all that because you lose all of those because they're typically owned by the denomination. Um, a second disadvantage is that denominations can downplay unity in the body. It can cause Christians, especially in America, to focus on what divides us rather than what unites us. And thus, it can. It, ironically, it provides for cooperation within the denomination, but it kills cooperation outside of uh, the denomination. Uh, a third disadvantage is that it can oftentimes create this unhelpful sort of label. For instance, if someone has a particular view of Presbyterians, whether it's right or wrong, having that denominational label might hurt your witness. Or having a label of Baptist, right? If someone asks, are you a Baptist? And their view of Baptist means you don't, you know, watch movies and you don't dance and you don't like fun and you don't like alcohol or whatever it might be. You might not want to identify with that because that might hurt your opportunities to share the gospel with them. And so that's a, a disadvantage. It can create this unhelpful sort of uh, label. A fourth a disadvantage 
is that there is an increased chance of infighting and politicking and so forth within the denomination, right? Denominations like churches aren't immune to the cultural lure of, uh, of bureaucracy. And then a fifth disadvantage is that resources that could go to missions and could go directly to church planning are often rerouted to support the denomination itself. I'm not saying that all denominations are unfaithful stewards of their funds. Uh, I certainly don't think that's the case. Uh, many are not. But regardless, oftentimes money gets diverted from supporting um, the, uh, the work to supporting the structure uh, itself. So speaking of disadvantages, let's close our time by asking where Parkway uh, lands. All right. So are we part of a denomination? Why or why not? Uh, we're asked quite often if we're affiliated with any denomination. The answer is no. We're not formally. We're certainly Baptistic in our theological convictions on church governance and baptism. And so in that sense, we're denominational in the sense that we are Baptistic. But in areas of soteriology, we're actually more closely uh, aligned to historic Reformed churches. We're Calvinistic, all right, when it comes to our understanding of how we're saved, that God chooses us in eternity past, and we choose him only because he has first chosen um, uh, us. And so it's kind of like for us, you ever go to a restaurant and they have a set menu? Like you go there and and they just tell you this is what you're going to get? I hate that. That's like the worst thing for me because I realized this at the age of, I'm 43, I probably realized this when I was 42 last year, all right, that I'm picky. I never knew this before, but I realize now that I am, uh, I'm pretty picky, and, uh, and so uh, I call it particular. It means the same thing, though. And, uh, and so uh, I like to be able to pick and choose what I want, and, uh, and so I think the same is true when it comes to um, uh, theology, Uh, There are certain areas where we're much more closely aligned with Presbyterians. Uh, For instance, again, Reformed theology. uh, In general, that is a part of Presbyterianism. And uh, and whereas in the Baptistic tradition, historically it was more uh, Reformed, historically, uh, but over the past hundred years or so, I would say by and large the SBC is much more Arminian. And uh, and so we like to be able to pick and choose. There's a little bit of each uh, that we think are... Uh, are helpful. And uh, so, in some sense, we are Baptistic, um, but, uh, but we are not officially uh, affiliated with any sort of uh, official denomination. Up until a couple of years ago, we were part of the SBC, but we removed ourselves a couple of years ago in light of some changes that we saw uh, in regards to gender, in regards to race, uh, and then with some of the scandals uh, that were going on at the time. Um, and, uh, and so we didn't think it was the best option for us. We still think there are advantages, but we just, uh, in general, are able to, um, we think that the cons outweighed the pros, especially because we already have a strong theological conviction uh, articulated in our statement of faith, and we don't do life alone. We have partnership with a number of churches in the area, and so we're trying to uh, continue to, uh, to uh, bolster that uh, cooperation and partnership and so forth. So that's a little bit of the history of denominations and where we land. Let's pray, and then we'll probably have time for maybe one, maybe two questions or so. Father, thank you for today. I thank you for your church and all of her diversity and all of her beauty and all of her mess. And I pray that you would help us to uh, love your bride because you do. And uh, so we pray these things with hope and expectation in Christ's name. Amen.